0: Hello, everybody, my name is Paul Abernathy. Welcome to Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code. Today's episode is a part two of a multi-part series dealing with some of the changes to the 2017 National Electrical Code. Obviously, we can't talk about all the changes. There's way too many of them. Yeah, you need to go back and listen to part one of this series to realize how many changes there actually are, uh, because I'm not going to repeat that because I got to keep the suspense for you to go listen to part one. But we are today going to talk about Part 2 and move on within some of the more significant changes. We obviously can't cover them all. So this is Part 2 of a multi-part series on some of the changes to the 2017 National Electrical Code. Uh, Before we get started on that, I will remind you to visit our website, which is masterthenec.com.org or .net. Uh, Once you get to that message board, uh, that website, there is a message board that you can join and post your questions. Be polite and respectful of others on that board. You can follow us on Twitter at at the uh, symbol at Master the NEC. Uh, you can also visit our Facebook page. If just get on Facebook and search for Master the NEC, you'll find us. Um, and uh, again, you can listen to other podcasts as well as those webinars that we produce. We just finished doing a seven part series on Article Six Eighty, dealing with swimming pools, hot tubs, spas, hydro massage therapy, uh, hydro massage bathtubs, therapeutic tubs and tanks therapeutic pools, which basically is the same as a permanently installed pool. Uh, we talked about permanently installed pool uh, and fountains. and So we went through all that, very detailed, uh, quite a few hours of, of information there to give you the basics if you want to learn more about pools and, and all that type of thing. Uh, so I encourage you to go to our website and go to our YouTube page. Uh, and you can get to the YouTube page from our Master the NEC website. So, All right, without further ado, let's jump into some of the changes again. Again, we're not going to cover every change That's important to understand. We're going to cover the more significant ones that I think that we should cover. And so I'm kind of pulling those out, uh, kind of getting those out of the way. All right. All right, so when dealing with the next one, let's look at 210.5C1, which is identification. And again, it's in 210. So it's obviously we're identifying uh, the aspects of uh, branch circuits, okay? And I don't know what I just did, but I did something on my screen. So bear with me as I try to bring up the document that I had earlier so that I could discuss this with everybody. And I'm not sure where it went, so let me bring it back. All right, so we're going to be at 210.5C1. If you're following along in the 2014, did you know that 210.5 is dealing with identification of brand circuits? And, of course, C is, is dealing with the identification of ungrounded conductors and how you identify those when you have more than one nominal voltage in a, in a building. Some of the language that was added here, as far as the labeling and the identification and all this type of thing, uh, has added some additional information. Next, what it's done is the required labels that are covered under 210.5C, uh, now the labels must be of sufficient durability to withstand the environment that are involved in, wherever they're at. Uh, wet environment, damp environment, uh, whatever, whatever it's subject to, uh, and the other key thing here is they can't be handwritten. So these have to be produced, whether it's a phenolic type of panel, whether it's something that's laminated. It can't be something that you write by hand. Okay, it's got to be produced and placed on these systems. Okay. Next thing that they did was they added an exception here. Now the exception is for what? Well, the exception has to do with what if I have an existing system and I'm adding a new system in? Now, when I'm required to do all this identification, do I do it to the old system as well? Which I might not even know what the identification is or how that system's configured, but I do know it might be, a, it's a different voltage than what I'm dealing with. Maybe that's a 277-480 and I'm dealing with a 12208 uh in a system. All I know is that my new system, I have to identify it by the voltages and the difference between the voltages of other systems and all that thing. I have to identify my system. And if I have two new installations, I got to identify and mark the differences in the voltages of the two systems and, and the conductors that are involved with that, the branch circuit conductors. Okay. And this is again going to be mirrored in 215 as well. But the reality is, what do I do with that old existing system? So they have a new exception was added to address existing installations where a voltage system already exists in the building and a different voltage system is actually being added to the building which is going to create the two different system. Okay. This exception requires marking of only the new system not the old system. Okay, And again where this exception applies when you're only marking the new system and you have an old system present it says all distribution equipment for each voltage system must be labeled. Okay, It must let you know this information. Okay? So how do we mark a new system just incidentally? okay, It could be a phenolic. It's got to be of sufficient durability capable to withstand the environment. Again, it can't be handwritten. This will be an example when we have a 480-277 volt system and we have phase A, B, and C, and, and phase A is brown, phase B is orange, phase C is yellow. It's marked as such so I can distinguish the color coding that goes with that system, right? now. The exception is gonna read like this. Here's how the exception is gonna read. It says, now the general rule here is, where premise wiring systems have more than one nominal voltage. Okay, again, this is gonna be exception to C1. It says, where the premise wiring system may uh, have more than one nominal voltage system, each ungrounded branch circuit, uh, each branch circuit conductor shall be identified by phase or line and systems at all terminations, connections, and splice points. I get that. That's something we do already. That is something that's already in C1. Uh, and so, and we when we do that, we have a we get some information that says in doing so you gotta comply with 2105 C1A and B. And one and A is means of identification uh, by separate color, marking, tags, what have you, or other approved means, which is the HJ's portion there. And the posting of it, the posting of it, the method utilized for the conductor or uh, originating in each panel board and panel board um, has to be available and shall permanently posted at each branch circuit panel board or similar distribution location. Oh, we got that. We're already doing that. The exception says identification not required for existing installations. Okay, that's the existing stuff where a voltage systems already exist and a different voltage system is being applied okay so existing 277 480 is already there and now i'm actually establishing a whole different system let's say i'm doing a 120 208 maybe through transformer maybe through utility if it meets the allowances of 230.7 uh, again we're just talking about branch circuits but we're saying we brought some new system into the building we got all these requirements it, It only applies when a different voltage system is being applied. And again, I only have to address the new system under this exception, okay? So that's all it's saying. Give a little more clarity to how you address that. There's some old systems that are in a building that you just no way could you go through and the mix and match of colors and whatever, not consistent. We want the new stuff to be consistent, but we really can't govern the old stuff, and that would be an undue hardship on the... uh, and it would never get through most AHJs. They would never, they would, they would amend this out at every state would say, no, that's too much undertaken. Too many systems would have to go down. Okay. All right. So let's move on. We have another allowance here under 210.5C2. If you're not familiar with that, this is the one where the branch circuits that are supplied from a DC system. And we had some serious changes in the 2014 NEC. Most notably, when you're dealing with the positive and negative terminals, we had that aspect of it uh, that we had to deal with. So um, you had some allowances here that you had to deal with. And so what we've done here is they've added a new list item, a item number four. Uh, So identification requirements for ungraded DC conductors. They've been revised to more than 60 volts as part of the global effect to correlate the requirements for the recognized dc voltages which incidentally can traditionally float above 50 volts when they're charging during a charging state okay so that was changed in it a little bit uh, in the in the charging language of that uh, item c2 which used to be more than 50 now it's going to be moved up to more than 60 to reflect that uh, and the new list item is going to permit sizes six and smaller with sleeves or shrink tube. Okay. And again, this is also going to apply in 215.12C2 as well for feeders. So you'll have that application where this same list item is going to pl- apply. So it's going to allow you the use of a shrink tube in order to be or sleeve in order to be able to do the markings, whether it's positive or negative, whether it says positive or negative on it. Uh, it's going to allow you to use these uh, sleeves or shrink tubes to do this identification at the terminals. All right, next let's move up into 210.8 dealing with GFCI protection. So there's been quite a few changes in here. Uh, Most notable change that we want to really talk about today is a lot of times in 210.8 we're talking about any receptacle that is within six feet of the outside edge of a sink or any receptacle that's in proximity to a sink when it comes to 210.8. It's going to uh, A through E. We're dealing with receptacles that are required to be readily accessible. But we need to know that measurement. Um, and here's the point. Today, currently, how the 2014 is written, if I have a sink in a kitchen and I have a receptacle for the of disposal under the sink, because it's within six feet of the outside edge of that sink, and you, inspectors take their six foot you know, string, a lot of them are doing that now. Uh, and they're taking the string, and they're putting it on the sink, and they're dragging it down. If that receptacle is within six feet, the way the code is written in 2014, it would have to be GFCI protected, right? Well, that wasn't their intent, and I think they pulled the language from up in 680 where it talks about how to measure the distances, and that it doesn't pierce permanent objects, it doesn't pierce through certain things. They've incorporated this language now into 210.8 when you're trying to make this six-foot measurement. And here's what it's going to say. It says, when determining the distance from receptacles, distance shall be measured as the shortest path the cord of the appliance connected to the receptacle would follow without piercing a floor, wall, ceiling, or fixed barrier, or passing through a door, doorway, or window. Now, a cabinet door is a door. Okay? It's still a door. So they never intended, if that door is shut, you don't take that measurement through. Now, there's going to be plenty of people that argue, well, what if it's open? I get you. But the intent here was you're not supposed to penetrate the doorway to go through it. Okay? So that measurement, what this is going to result in is that the receptacles underneath the sink are not going to have to be GFCI protected. That's what it's going to do. Now you're going to have plenty of people that say, well, water can leak and whatever. I'm, I get that. You got bigger issues than that when you got water leaking down there, you probably shouldn't be in there working on the electrical receptacle, right? Just saying, okay. You, you might still have receptacles under there that are, that, that are providing protection for the, um, the, the dishwasher, uh, if it's cord and plug connected. The reality of the fact is, I don't think that that area is really considered readily accessible anyway. That's just my opinion. Many inspectors agree, some disagree, but I can tell you my 78-year-old mom is not going to be crawling down in there to reset her GFCI. So your alternative is a faceless on the top uh, or a breaker in the panel that's GFCI protected. Okay. But anyway, that's for the inspection authority to work out. I'm just trying to tell you that we do have a definition now, the measurement. Now understand, you can argue that the receptacle under the counter is within six feet and somebody could leave the cabinet door open, the reality is, what would be the purpose of putting the the requirements for measuring if they intended for you to measure down under the sink through the doorway? They wouldn't need this if it was truly measured in any direction. The real rule here, or the real scope that they were trying to go after, was for those receptacles that are on the back side of the wall from a sink that's maybe on a peninsula that's sticking out, that the backside on the other side, it's maybe facing a dining room or a living room or, a dining, you know, or or some other location, nook or whatever it is. Those are the ones they were targeting. Any of those other receptacles. Kitchen countertops already have to be required in the course with 210.A6. So we're not targeting those, okay? There's a reason why they have the six-foot rule here and give you an idea of how to measure it because it's needed for 210.8. 6 A seven, it's needed for nine. Both of those reference to give a reference to the six foot requirement. Uh, So you needed guidance on how to make that measurement. And we already had this in 680, so it made sense, right? Okay, so I think you're going to be a lot of inspectors are going to be pleasantly surprised by this, although there's plenty of people who think that. GFCIs should be anywhere. And again, there, nothing prohibits that. You can put all the GFCI devices that you want in a building. Uh, go for it. Except on the fire alarm and burglar. <laughs> but anyway, you get the point. All right. So let's look at some changes here in Oh, um, and this is where it's going to be most notable here. Uh, 210.8A7, for example. It says, GFCI required for all 125 volts, single-phase, 15 and 20 ampere receptacles, Installed within six feet from the top inside edge. That's a change for 2017, the language, because some of these sinks don't sit in the counter. Some of them actually protrude above, so we have to be able to take that measurement. It says, from the top inside edge of the dwelling unit sink, laundry, utility, mudroom, kitchen, bar, essentially all of those things now. Now they don't item out. It concludes them all. Without the measurement piercing the floor, wall, ceiling, or fixed barrier, or passing through a door, doorway, or window. That's going to be the rule, and that's going to be how it's written, okay? Uh, Note, same requirement for 210.8B5 for the non-dwelling unit sink is going to also come into play, okay, under sinks, okay? So this rule is going to apply to 210.8A7, specifically. So hopefully this will help you and give you give some guidance on how to do the measurement. All right, and let's go on to see here. I'm just kind of picking through some of the more significant changes that I want to do. Oh, okay. So here's one 210.8b three-phase GFCI protection. So in B, we're dealing with obviously other than dwellings. We've got these requirements in here. Uh, We needed to have some other ones. So here's something that's going into the code. For other than dwelling units, so it's going to be under 210.8B. It says all single-phase receptacles rated 150 volts to ground or less, 50 amperes or less, and three-phase receptacles rated 150 volts to ground or less, 100 amperes or less installed in specified locations shall have ground fault circuit interrupter protection for personnel. So we're getting some expansion in here in the other than dwelling unit application. Okay. So if it's single phase receptacles at 150 volts to ground or less, if they're 50 amps or less, if they're three phase receptacles that operate at 150 amps, uh, 150, excuse me, 150 volts to ground or less, or are 100 amps or less, okay, for the three-phase system. Then are installed in specific locations, they have to have ground fault circuit interrupter protection. So that is new for the 2017 National Electrical Code to provide that ground fault circuit protection, okay? All right, 210.8e, crawl space lighting requirements. GFCI protection for lighting outlets in... Uh, crawl spaces have been added. So now you see the expansion where previously it stopped at D, which was kitchen dishwasher brand circuit. It is now in, expanded into E. And E is going to say specifically GFCI protection is now required for the lighting outlets that don't exceed 120 volts in crawl spaces where the space is at or below grade level. So if your crawl space has a lighting outlet in it, which is required to have the lighting, especially if there's equipment serviced under there, uh, the lighting outlet that you put in there, if it's at grade level or below grade level, now that lighting outlet has got to be protected by GFCI protection, okay? So that has been added. Uh, And again, this this applies to, because it's E, it applies to both dwelling units and non-dwelling units, okay? It's not under A, it's not under B, it's E. It applies to both. Okay, so if that happens to be in the case where we have a non-dwelling unit application, uh, then you have a crawl space and it has a lighting outlet and it is at below grade or level or a grade level, um, then it's going to have to have GFCI protection on that. Okay, so that's new. That wasn't required before. Two ten point eleven C four. Okay. So let's go into let's go to two ten point eleven C four. If you if you're following along in your National Electrical Code book, you can kind of see where these are changed. Obviously, these are the two thousand and seventeen changes, uh, but it kind of allows you to kind of follow along a little bit. All right. So C four, we had a C one dwelling unit, which was small appliance branch circuits. So the, you know, this was the branch circuit requirements, and that just talks about two or more twenty amps for small appliance branch circuits. and you got laundry which at least one 20 amp brand circuit shall be provided for the laundry receptacle outlets. Uh, and that's those that were required by 210.52F. Um, and then, of course, you had the bathroom receptacle requirements. Where So these are kind of areas where the code said, all right, we have our square footage requirement, 3VA, and you do your math for dwelling units, we get you. You're going to come up with the number of brand circuits you need. But by the way, we do have some mandatory minimum requirements to have a certain number of circuits when you're doing that minimum number of branch circuits calculation and you're doing all this stuff in 220. So we had two small appliances, we know we had the laundry, we know we had the bathroom. Now we're going to have to require garage branch circuits. So a new 210 11C4 has been added to require at least one 20 amp branch circuit to supply garage receptacle outlets. Okay? Now, the previous the this previously prohibition to supply an outdoor receptacle from a garage circuit has been deleted. Thank goodness. We fought for that, okay? In other words, that circuit that I run under 210.52G1 previously said it couldn't serve any other outlets. That has been removed. So this one, you have to have at least one and it can serve other outlets. The reality is it's still protected by the same 20 amp overcurrent protected device. So it is inherently limited, okay? So... All right, so that was been added. Uh, again, you still have the requirement in 210.G1, uh, which requires at least a receptacle for, for each vehicle bay. Uh, that's still there. You're still required to have at least, you know, and then that, they can be there. But then you have the requirements, like we just said, of 210.11C4, which says, okay, I have to have at least one brand circuit. And oh, by the way, I have to have at least one receptacle on that for each bay. And then again, the readily readily accessible outdoor receptacle is permitted to now be on the required garage branch circuit under the exception under 210.11c4. So that's where we're at with that. Okay, so obviously we've got a little bit of relief. You have two bay vehicle bays now is what it's called. If I have two vehicle bays and I have to have at least two receptacles serving those vehicle bays, they can come from that at least one 20 amp branch circuit. Can I have more than one? Yep. I got to at least have that one. All right. All right. So let's look at some other changes. I know everybody's going to be excited about this one. We have some changes in 210.12C AFCI protection for guest rooms and guest suites of hotels and motels. All right. The rule is all 120 volt. That means a little tip for you. When you hear 120, you know, they're talking about the brand circuit. When you hear 125, you know, we're talking about the device. Okay. That'll serve you well, looking through the code when you see those different terminologies. Okay. To know whether or not we're protecting the device or we're protecting the circuit, something that might have to apply to the whole circuit. Okay. You have different rules where it might apply to the device and you have rules where the device is actually protected, but it could be an upstream overcurrent protection device that's protecting that device. Okay. So, you know, or you have an upstream AFCI that's protecting the device, or you might have an upstream GFCI that's protecting the device. You see what I'm saying? So it's real important to understand the nuances with the 120 versus the 125, okay, in knowing whether or not you're dealing with a receptacle or a device versus dealing with a branch circuit, and that's just kind of a little helpful thing. All right, so all 120 volts, single phase. Obviously, we're dealing with the branch circuit itself for this AFCI requirement. 15 and 20 ampere brand circuits supplying outlets and devices installed in guest rooms and guest suites of hotels and motels shall be provided with AFCI protection. Okay, so this is 210.12C. All right, so now, again, you have no, you know, you there is no relax. It is basically going to require you to protect all of those 15 and 20 amp circuits Dealing with outlets and devices installed uh, in a guest suites of hotels and motels. Okay. AFCI protection is moving its way into that area. Okay. Uh, ARCs can happen there just as well. So, all right. So, let's move on into some wall spacing uh, type of requirements. 210.52A2 for wall space. Okay. For all of you that are following along in your code book, as we kind of look and see what it changed a little bit, uh, you want to go to... Q10.52, let me get there myself, all right, all right, so I'm here, for those that are following along, an electronic PDF version, that's all I really use that much these days, is, uh, is, I believe it's, what page are we on, I believe it is page 60, okay, or 70-60 in the lower left column, I guess, that's what we should say, all right, so it says, where fixed cabinets are installed with countertops in dwelling units in other than areas addressed in 210.52C. And, of course, you know we're talking about other areas not addressed in 210.52C. And just so you remember, 210.52C is dealing with what? That's dealing with countertops in kitchens, pantry, bathrooms, dining rooms, similar areas of dwelling. Okay, so it says... Let me read it. So, I wanted to make sure you knew what we were talking about, what C is dealing with. It says, where fixed cabinets are installed, and this is fixed cabinets now, are installed with countertops in dwelling units other than the areas addressed in 21052C. Okay, so if it's 21052C location, this doesn't apply. It says, the countertop space is subject to the requirements for, for wall space and receptacles are required in accordance with 21052a1. So, if it's a fixed cabinet and it has a countertop, that means you have space above it, that means you can't get away from the requirement for spacing. Before it talked about fixed cabinets and you had ability to say, well, if it's what's a fixed cabinet? I don't if it, you know, it might not go all the way up to the ceiling, but it's a fixed cabinet and that was excluded. Now they've clarified that look, if it's a countertop on it, and it's a fixed cabinet and it's got a countertop on it, then it's going to have to still meet the spacing requirements, and receptacles are going to be required in accordance with 210.52A1. Okay. Now this revision also expands the requirements of 210.52A2 and A4 to similar type of workspaces. Okay, so it kind of gives uh, some more, you know, areas to those. Kind of give you a little bit of uh, definition to those spaces. Okay. Um let's go on. It says the term exterior is deleted in 21052 A22, recognizing that exterior walls may also contain fixed panels. Okay. So you notice it said previously it said the space occupying by fixed panels in exterior walls, excluding sliding panels. Well, they remove the term exterior. It was deleted from it. Recognizing again that interior walls uh may also have contained fixed panels. So in those exterior type of walls. The interior might have those walls. So just got rid of that that, that the notion of exterior. So uh, let's see here. This just, just that change and and so let me read you what it says under 21052 A21 all right it's going to be there it's going to say any space the way it's read now but it's going to say any space two feet or more in width and unbroken uh along the floor line uh by doorway or similar openings fireplaces or fixed cabinets that do not have countertops or similar workspaces. okay so if i have a cabinet that goes up that doesn't have a countertop on it then that's not considered wall space okay Again, we're dealing with the fixed cabinets. If I have one that's kind of like, I don't know, maybe it's only two feet high and it's got a countertop on it and maybe your TV mounts over it and something like that, that's going to count as wall space. So keep that in mind. So if I had a fixed cabinet right next to one of those two foot high with a countertop on it and they were on a wall, in the past somebody could say, well, I don't count any of that as wall space. Well, that's not going to be the case now. It might not start until it gets to the end of that cabinet that that it doesn't have a surface countertop okay then you're going to count six feet if that counter is goes six feet then i'm gonna have to have a receptacle in there somewhere and it might be above it and obviously it it have to be above it and it can't be more than five and a half feet high Uh, otherwise we got issues with the charging statement of 210.52 and most notably item four so we got to be careful with the, you know, that. So this is just giving us some clarity. Um, Again, if it's a full fixed cabinet, goes from the floor to ceiling or up high and has no countertop, it's not considered wall space. If it's a cabinet that has a counter space on top of it, then it is counted as wall space. Okay. Just keeping that in mind. That's the change. Most notably, I can see this happening in an office. I'm in my office, op- not an office, maybe a library where I have a place where you sit down and it has a counter, but right next to it, I have bookcases that are built in that go all the way to the ceiling. I, that's not wall space. But when you come around to the actual portion of it, that's like a desk that's built in with a, uh, a, um, a um, countertop to it. Uh, well, that's wall space. I need receptacles there. Okay. Makes sense to me. All right, let's go on to 210.52B1, exception number two, appliance branch circuit. So this is uh, probably a significant change for many people. So if you got your code book, let's all go to 210.52B2, exception. Uh, let's see here. Well, let's read it first. It says, uh, let me read you what the code change, and we'll, we'll, just, uh, we'll just read it as it's written here. Refrigeration uh, equipment generally required to be served by by the two or more small appliance branch circuit. That's the general rule. However, the code doesn't allow me under exception number two for appliances. Okay. It said, well, the receptacle uh, for any specific appliance is permitted to be supplied from an individual branch circuit rated 15 amperes or greater. So that was exception number two. And in the old code, it said, you know, the receptacle outlet for refrigeration equipment shall be permitted. So the general rule is applied by one of the two small appliance brand circuits. It permits me to have a receptacle outlet. Okay, it doesn't say outlets, a receptacle outlet. So it's a single receptacle, all violated many times. Probably not the worst case fear from people. But the code says the receptacle outlet for refrigeration equipment shall be permitted to be supplied from an individual branch circuit rated 15 amperes or greater. So it could be 15 amperes or it could be a 20 ampere. uh, But it could be, in other words, it could be its own um, individual branch circuit just for that. So you don't have to put it on the two small appliance branch circuits, okay? Uh, If you don't run it, then it does have to be part of the small appliance branch circuit. So that's how it it rolls, right? But the the biggest change in this was... uh, just that now the um, that was the that was the language change it says uh, the receptacle for any specific appliance it's permitted to be supplied from an individual brand circuit rated 15 or greater so where's the change here uh, before it was specific for refrigeration equipment so here's the change, it, it, can't, it doesn't have to apply just to refrigeration equipment anymore. Okay. Obviously this is going to apply to 15 or 20 amp individual brand circuit for specific appliances. And to be honest with you, that was already done uh, for things like dishwashers, things like microwaves, but the reason that this is the reception, the exception to the rule because those typically weren't put on the small the two or more 20 amp small appliance brand circuits anyway okay they were their own dedicated so the new language just turns it into not specifically being devoted just to refrigeration equipment okay 210.52 c3 dealing with peninsula countertop spaces All Right. 210.52C is revised to apply to countertops and work surfaces, okay? So, peninsula countertops are no longer, so this is going to not only apply to the countertops, but it's also to, and work surfaces that are going to apply within 210.52C, okay? Okay. And in 210.52c, as we know, we're dealing with countertops. So it's also not just a countertop, but you could have other work surfaces involved with the pantry, breakfast room, you know, whatever. They're going to apply there. Okay. Um, another key significant change here is how we measure peninsulars. And I'm hopefully they got this language right uh, because it used to be measured from the connecting edge. So if I had think of an L shape, and if I had the counter along the wall, was the long dimension. And then you had the piece that jetted out from it. The connecting edge was a theoretical change between the, the one cabinet going one way or the counter going one way and the other one going the other way. That theoretical connection was the line, and that's where the peninsula started. Well they have removed the term connecting uh, the connecting edge. So now it's actually measured from the wall as you run it straight out. So now the wall is encompassed in that, okay so the width of the con- of the connecting at countertop is now added to the peninsula countertop long dimension. Okay, so you're still going to have your dimensions, but now it's going to encompass from the actual counter that you used to not count. You only started from the connecting edge. Now you're going to you're going to count the width of the of the counter that the that used to be the connecting edge was connected to. Now you're going to have to measure that whole piece. So in other words, it's from the wall all the way out now. Okay. so in the 2014 nec the connecting edge so let's say you had a wall and i had a a counter for my kitchen was running along the wall and then i had this piece that jetted out from the wall okay and that was your peninsula and you measured it from the connecting edge well now you have to measure from the wall all the way out to the end of that peninsula so you got to take up the account of the existing countertops depth as well as the peninsular depth, depth, and now that's going to determine your peninsula measurements. Okay, so it's the connecting wall now for the peninsula. So that's the real change here. You know, that's almost going to take a graphic to explain that one. Uh, but I think I hope you understand that, it, that the connecting here. Here's the key thing for all you savvy code people. It's hard to show some of these things in a um, in an audio. Obviously, it's a it's a podcast. Uh, Just remember that the connecting edge is going away. So instead of right there where the two countertops meet, now you're going to come all the way back to the wall. So what could that mean? Could that mean that the receptacle that's on the wall that's serving the countertop also can serve the peninsula? It is quite possible. We have to wait until the code language all the way comes out. All I can tell you is right now that connecting edge is disappearing. Okay? and i believe there is language that's going to be in there to help clarify the distances and make that change and if it's over a certain number of feet then you have to have an additional one out on the peninsular end and you know there's going to be more rules here uh, but just have to just want to keep you aware of those changes you heard it first here man the connecting edge is gone all right 210.52 g1 we talked kind of about it earlier Uh, dwelling unit garages they added the term in each vehicle bay so uh, it says in each attached garage and in each detached garage with electric power. So if you got power out there, at least one receptacle outlet is required to be installed in each vehicle bay. Okay, it doesn't say a branch circuit is required for each. That's what tends to be real confusing for people. It says that each a receptacle shall be required to each in each for each vehicle bay, not more than five and a half feet above the floor. Okay and that could be served as we saw earlier in 210.11D now by at least one and it could pick up those two if it's a two-car garage you got two receptacles okay but it also said that, it's, that it has to have that application at least one for each outlet that doesn't mean it can't have other outlets in there and now you can serve additional outlets outside okay Here's a significant change to those that have been pushing for receptacles in meeting rooms. Obviously, this is very beneficial to the device manufacturer industry because many times there are no receptacle spacing requirements in the commercial code. Okay, uh, There's some unique applications like a receptacle for, uh, within 25 feet of the electrical equipment, uh, service equipment, in other words. Uh, there are certain requirements for servicing units. How far a receptacle has to be, 25 feet, Uh, There's certain requirements there, but the general rule for the number of receptacles in in it are generally pretty open for the engineer's design, unlike in a dwelling unit where you got to have them one every six feet from the opening and then every 12 feet so that no point along the wall is more than than six feet from a receptacle. You got all those type of things, Uh, at least, you know, again, the bathroom, the two small appliances, and then you got the receptacle placement requirements and 210.52C for the countertops in a kitchen and every two feet, uh, every two feet from the edge and then every four feet so that no point along that wall is more than two feet from a receptacle. You got all these requirements, but you really don't in a commercial application. Well, in meeting rooms, people tend to use extension cords, relocatable power taps, they daisy chain them, which the standard for those, which I think is 1363 is the standard for relocatable power taps. Don't quote me, but I think it is. They're not designed to be daisy chained, their standard doesn't allow it, but people do it. So why do they do it? Because there's never enough receptacles in these rooms. I am in the electrical industry, I'm heavy about electrical compliance and safety, but almost every meeting I go to, we got 50 and 60 people in a room and there's just not enough receptacles. So guess what happens? We all violate that rule. We daisy chain the heck out of these relocatable power taps. We get power where we can. They weren't designed for that. What's the solution? Put receptacles in there. So a new requirement for the minimum number of non-locking, that's just traditional, you know, 125 volt, fifteen to twenty-eight receptacles, to be installed in non-dwelling unit meeting rooms. Now in meeting rooms having a floor area of not more than a thousand square feet. Okay, not more than a thousand square feet, receptacle outlets shall be installed in accordance with two ten seventy one B. Now, 210.71B says, look, the total number of receptacle outlets, those including in the floor or a fixed furniture, you know, if you, fixed equipment that's fixed in place, shall not be less than that determined in 1 and 2. Okay, so it's going to give you some requirements here under 1 and 2 that's going to be added to 210.71B. Now, these receptacle outlets shall be permitted to be located as determined by the designer of the or the building owner. So you're going to have a number that you got to have. They're going to let you put them based on the layout of the room and they're going to let the designer determine that, but we're going to come up with the number of them that's going to have to be in there based on 1 and 2 of 21071B which is new to the code, okay? And then the designer and the building owner could say, "Well, this is how my my fixed furniture is going to lay and here's how it's going to be and this is how I want them to be installed." So how does it say that? It says 21071B1 it says receptacle outlets installed uh, shall be installed in accordance with 210.52 A1 through A4. Now, 210.52 dwelling unit receptacle outlets: A general provision, one spacing, two wall space, three floor receptacles, or four countertop uh, receptacles. Okay, so what is it saying? It's saying that look, B1 saying look, if it's of a certain size then you need to meet the requirements that are found in two ten fifty two A1 through A4. And then let those requirements dictate your spacing requirements, okay? And that's what it's driving you to. And then, of course, you got B2. Now, B2s are meeting rooms that, are, that is at least 12 feet wide and have a floor area of at least 225 square feet. And not more than 760 square feet. Okay, so they're they have at least 225. Okay, but they have a width of at least 12 feet, so it can be a 12 foot wide long room, and the uh, so they have to be at least 12 feet wide, but the actual area has to be between 225 feet and 760 feet. Would we'll have to have at least one floor receptacle at a distance not less than six feet from any fixed wall, okay? So you've got that requirement to have at least one floor uh, floor receptacle at a distance of not less than six feet from any fixed wall. So those are the requirements that are gonna be coming in the 2007 as far as receptacle placement. Now, don't need to go into a lot of detail now, you just need to understand when you get the 2017, you need to look at this and see how this is gonna apply And uh, and obviously, we'll do a more in-depth code analysis as we go. If you have any questions on how this is going to apply or you think a graphic should be designed for it, let me know. I will try to to, to get you the clarity for that. All right. Uh, 230.29, overhead service conductors supported over buildings. There's been a revision to 230.29 requiring... Metal support racks or structures to be bonded by means of a bonding jumper and listed connector to the grounded overhead service conductor for grounded systems. So when it's going over the building or clearing the building uh, and you have any racks or supporting structure, you have to make sure that it is also connected to the grounded conductor. Now, typically the weather head, if it's metal and everything's raceways metal, that all gets done by the supporting neutral uh, application and it's connected to the masthead and everything gets done, but you have other supporting structures or components that you're going to have to make sure that that grounded conductor is now bonded to that component. Okay. Now, when you want to size that bonding jumper, it's going to be the sizing minimum requirements of Article 250, probably most notably 250.102C uh, 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 requirements there. Okay, so sometimes in order to maintain the clearances above roofs, okay, for these overhead service conductors, uh, which the code does govern, okay, we're not talking about service drops here, we're talking about overhead service conductors, which are when the service point changes over, let's say, maybe the power comes to a property and the transformer's there and they say, look, this is our service point, we're not taking it that extra 100 feet to your property. So you end up putting another pole on the property, then it has to go, let's say, over a building you have to maintain that clearances, but that's under the guidance of the NEC because it's now overhead service conductors. It's not service drop application. Okay, they do have their requirements for clearance. We're talking about something else here. We're trying to make sure that that component that provides that clearance, whatever that structure, a rack, a tower, whatever it is, it helps keep those conductors up there. All right, if it's a metal support system, then it has to be bonded to the actual grounded conductor in that system, okay? 230.70A4, exterior service disconnects. All right. I'm not even going to think I'm going to tell you about this one because if my memory serves me right, uh, is that it got shot down during the NITMAMS. If if my memory's right, it did get shot down. You got to remember, I I do so many things, so many panels and committees that I'm trying to remember. But I believe it did get shot down. But I'm going to tell you what it is. Okay. Uh, But I'm pretty sure it's gone. This was a requirement to have an exterior disconnection means. Okay. So what it said was service disconnection means or remote control devices for a one and two family dwelling required to be installed on the outside of the building or structure. So before I could even come into the structure, I had to have a disconnect outside service disconnect. Now, the outside disconnect means required to be located on the outside uh, at, at the outdoor meter location or at the outdoor location nearest the point of entry of the service conductors, okay? So, be honest with you, it had to be a disconnect outside, but the argument could be that it says outside nearest the point of entry of the service conductors. Uh, if it's a disconnect outside, the, the nearest point of entry, to me, would be now feeders going inside, right? Anyway... You get my point. You come down from a service overhead, you hit a meter, and it wants an outs- the outside service disconnection means here, and then you can go inside, okay? Which would be a feeder to an indoor remote distribution panel, for example. So there really was a push to make the disconnection mean outside for the fire industry. Uh, but I believe during the NITMAMS, there was enough arguments that, 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 that didn't support it. Again, don't hold me to that. I am I'm ha- i haven't read the report. I think that's what took place. Very heated debate. And, and I believe it was removed. Because there are consequences to this. Because it had a note on there that said, future effective date of this is July 1st, 2020. And the reason they did this was to allow additional feedback in, in other when we get to the next code cycle which was in, you know, for the 2020 edition, okay? So we were getting more information. Here's the bad side about this. What if you're in one of those jurisdictions who adopt the code really late, okay? And so by the time we get to uh, July 1st of 2020 for the adoption aspect of it, your jurisdiction is still back here on the 2017 code. And when July 1st comes around, the effective date for this disconnect starts immediately. Well, what if 2020 edition removed this, but you haven't yet adopted it? You're still going to be subject to this requirement, even though it says that it's effective not until July 1st. So you don't have to do it until then. If you're still on a 2017 and and, and other places have adopted the 2020, and let's say they remove this requirement, you're still going to be required and bound to it because of this change. Okay, so it had implications And not every jurisdiction adopts the code at the same time. There's many of them, for example, that are many, many years behind. So the ramifications of you being stuck by this requirement, when even the code might revert back to say this is foolish in 2020, other people might be on codes that they might be on the 2017 for another five years. And you're stuck with this requirement, even though it no longer exists because the code panel in 2020 got rid of it due to public comments and or public input and all this type of stuff. So it created this paradox. So I think that it pretty much got removed um, for it. The fire services were very much for this. Um, I can tell you that very much for it. Um, so but I don't think it passed. All right. So now we're going to look at some of the things that Code Making Panel 10 did in Article 240, dealing with 240.67 arc energy reduction. They have a new rule requires arc energy reduction methods of incident energy reduction for fuses. Okay. So fuses are well known to help in reducing that uh, energy reduction component. Uh, any reduction requirements reduced. Uh, the energy reduction requirements reduces incident energy for circuit breaker rating 1200 amps or greater have been well-established okay so methods of incident energy reduction will now be required for 1200 amp or greater fused switches okay so bringing in the requirements for fuses now uh, if you got your code book and you look at the 2014 and we're gonna go to 240.67 and you can read some of the language here. And let me let me find it back here. Okay. Actually, it's a new rule for this one. We had the energy. We had the requirements for fuse uh, for circuit breakers. But we didn't have. So let's look back here. Let me give you back here. Let me look and see where I can see the change in this one. Marking... Hmm. Oh, yeah. Energy reduction was in 240.87. That's ARC energy reduction. If you look at it and you read it, it talks about the highest continuous current trip settings for which the actual overcurrent device... In a circuit breaker is rated uh, for 20, but it didn't give any aspect to fuses. So here it just added the fuse component. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that they changed this to 240.67. My notes say that it's 240.87. Okay, so here's the important part that you need to take away from it when you're dealing with arc energy reduction. uh, Now has added the new rule added fuses, and that means that the 1200 amps or greater is also gonna apply to fusible switches. And be honest with you, fuses have notoriously been great for dealing with issues, dealing with, with uh, incidental energy, arc flashes and clearing times and all this kind of good stuff. So arc reduction uh, through the benefit of fuses is a benefit here. But you see the reduction in clearing time is one of the options, documentation for, of such uh, active mitigation systems. Our approved equivalent means, which might have been fuses up to this point, um, now is actually going to be written in there. So Now, this requirement ha- has a delayed implementation. Again, this one's not going to be implemented until January 1st, 2020 uh, to, previ- to permit the industry to develop a feasible solution. Okay, So obviously... While the fuses can do that, they have no way of doing it, I reckon. So, um, we do know fuses do work very well for uh, getting uh, available fault current applications. So, anyway, this is a 2020, so it's not going to be up till then. Um, It says, 240.67 methods to reduce arc energy are similar to those... Oh, here we go. They are similar to those that are in 240.87, with the additional provision permitting a fuse that would open the circuit in 0.07 seconds or less at or below the available arcing current. Okay, so 240.87 staying, obviously, for circuit breakers, and it's simply adding a component for fuses. Okay, good deal. And let's see here, let's go, uh, let's get into some more. Let's go on up into... 200, 250, 280, and 285, and talk about some of these changes. 240.4A1 and 240.4B1, we have a new informational notes were added following 250.4A and 250.4B. And these are going to reference NFPA 780 standard, and that is the lightning protection standard. So we're going to have some notes that are going to be added there. Uh, Appropriate references to the NFPA 780, which again is a lightning protection are now provided with the performance requirements related to grounding and ungrounded electrical systems. So, it's going to give some guidance when it deals with lightning protection and where to go when you, if that happens to be your your issue where you need to go. 250.22 circuits not to be grounded. A new list item 6 has been added. So, Let's go on to 250.22 if you're following along in your code book. Again, your 2014 code book. There's a requirement here that says, look, circuits not to be grounded. The following circuits shall not be grounded. And you have five items under the 2014. Well, a new item has been listed here. And the new item says here, it says... The revision clarifies that a class 2 load side circuit for suspended ceiling low voltage power grid, that was added, that's 399, which was added back in the 2014 code, okay, uh, should not be grounded. So that was added, clarification here was added. So that that's good. That was added in here. It says, it also provided a reference to section 393.60B provides a correlation between 250.22 and 393.60. So it sends you back and forth to make you understand that, hey, the system's not required to be, uh, shall not be grounded. This is a different type of system. Okay. And so the language it's going to say is that. It's going to add item 6, and it's going to say, Class 2 load side circuits for suspended ceiling, low voltage power grid distribution systems. Again, that was Article 393 in the 2014 um, systems as provided in 393.60 B. Okay. So it's going to give you that reference back. 250.24 C grounded conductors bolt to a service. So we know the general rule is that what, when we got a service to a building, uh, then what we're going to do is we're going to have to bring, uh, it says where the AC system operates at a thousand volts or less, and grounded at any point, the grounded conductor shall be routed with the ungrounded conductors to each service disconnection means, and shall be connected to each disconnection means grounded terminal or bus. Okay, we got that. Got to come down, got to connect. We got it. Now, the words or cable have been added to list item one and two. Okay, Uh, good, because number one says sizing of single raceways. And number two says parallel conductors in two or more raceways. Uh, Incidentally, this was my proposal. Uh, It's pretty simple. It just simply added the word or cable uh, because raceways are not cables. And 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 many times we have parallel applications with cables, MC cables or whatnot that drop down uh, or anything of that nature. We just want to make sure it's going to cover that requirement. Okay, So or cables were added. Okay. Yes, we do make MC cables designed for wet locations. For those that said, well, it doesn't apply, sure it does. Okay. All right. It says the revision clarifies that the minimum size requirement for, for service grounding conductors apply whether installed in a raceway or a cable assembly. Because So that's what you're dealing with, sizing, whether or not it's one and two. So it just reiterates the fact that, yes, it also applies to raceways. The sizing rule applies to service grounded conductors uh, in in a single raceway or cable and those installed in a parallel arrangement as well of cables, okay? So that's all it did here was make sure that you understand that. I thought it was a pretty simple change, but I I went and looked at areas that that dealt only with raceways, but you could have a possible installation where cables were involved. And anytime we can avoid some confusion, you know that's what we try to do. We we try to avoid the confusion. All right, we have a change in 250.30A4 to, to look at here. Now get your code books and go to 250.30A4, uh, and I will scroll to it as well. And I love the PDF versions, by the way. I, I just couldn't, I just can't drag the hard copy around anymore. So 250.30A4 is Section 250.30A4 has been revised and simplified, and exception number one has been deleted. So A4, um, exception number one and A4, and let's look at it. A4. And that was the exception. It said, any of the other electrodes identified in 250.52A shall be used if the electrodes specified by 250.30A4 are not available. Okay. So, the revision clarifies that the building grounding electrode system must be used. We're establishing a grounding electrode for the separately derived system. You must use the building's grounding electrode system. Okay. If installed outdoors, the grounding electrode for the separately derived system must comply with 250.30C. Okay. So, this is dealing with electrodes here in the building, I believe in The building application, and then uh, let's see here. Let's go down to C. Bear with me as I scroll down with you. If you're all with me here, yeah, and C now that was indoor. Now C is dealing with the outdoor source, and then it says if C if it's installed outdoors, the grounding electrode for this separately drive system must apply with 250.30 C. And of course, it says, if the source of a separatized system is located outside or structure supplied, the grounding electrode connection shall be made, it's not a permissive, that's a requirement, shall be made at the source location of one or more grounding electrodes in compliance with 250.50. In addition, the installation shall comply with 250.30A for grounded systems, so it's got to comply with that, or with 250.30B in ungrounded systems, okay? So you still have you have to still have to meet two fifty point thirty c if they're installed outdoors. Okay, significant change here was the deletion to one indoors. You got to connect to the, the gr- building's grounding electrode system. Okay, when it's indoors. All right, so let's move on. Two fifty point thirty a six common grounding electrode conductor. Two fifty point thirty a six is, and let me scroll, this one is grounding electroconductors multiple separately derived systems. List item 6 addressed grounding electroconductors for multiple systems, okay? List item 6A, which if you look at 6A, which was the common grounding electroconductor, has been revised to clarify items that can serve as a common grounding electroconductor. So, list item 6C2 now indicates the length of the bus bar shall be of sufficient length to accommodate the number of terminations necessary for the installation. So previously when you looked at C2 and let's go to it it said a quarter of an inch by 2 inches but it never really addresses the length. Okay? It says the link link connections to aluminum or copper bus bars smaller than uh, uh, bars not smaller than quarter of an inch by two inches, but it really didn't deal with the length. And so the new change is going to say, look, it's going to have to be of sufficient length to make all these terminations. If you start stacking them and doing other things because you're trying to cram them all into this and the inspector could say, look, that ain't sufficient length in order to make the proper terminations using the proper termination components that are in accordance with 250.8. So it's not of sufficient length. So we have the the requirements here for the the, the, the thickness and the width and the uh, depth, but we uh, the depth and the width, but we don't have a length requirement. Now we're just going to say that it has to be sufficient, okay? So we get some clarity on what can be used and we get some clarity on the type of connection that can be used in that common copper or aluminum bus. So we get that guidance there. 250.52A2, Metal In-Ground Support Structures. Okay, let me get to 250.52. First of all, Section 250.52A2 has been revised and simplified to apply metal in-ground building or structure supports that function as grounding electrodes, okay? The previous text that was in there related to the structural metal building frames above the earth has been removed, Okay. That, that part that was in the previous has been removed. The revision aligns this section with the definition of the term grounding electrode in Article One Hundred. So the metal in ground support structures have been clarified in two hundred and fifty point fifty two A two. Okay. Two hundred and fifty point fifty two B now permitted, uh, not permitted for use as an electrode. Section two hundred and fifty point fifty two provides a list of items that are not permitted for use as grounding electrodes, and then a new list item three has been added uh, to section 250.52B. Okay, the, the structures in reinforcing steel for in-ground pools are not permitted to be used as the required ground electro electrode system of a building or structure. That should have gone without saying. Everybody knows that that is, if you have the reinforcing steel in your swimming pool system, that's a conductive pool shell. That right there is for echo potential bonding. If you're not familiar with all that, go watch our video series. On this, uh, and uh, most notably chapter 2, which deals with 680.26 for the echo potential bonding grid. And you'll have a B1 through B7 component that ties everything together there. That is not what that's for. It has nothing to do with being a, uh, an electrode, if you will, to any building or structure. That's not what it's intended to do. Some people think it's there, so it's similar to a concrete encased electrode that I can use it. That is not what it's there for, not what it's supposed to be, okay? Just making you So we're just letting you know there's been some changes uh, to the list item for non-permitted electrodes. Uh, so just keeping that in mind. And again, 250.52B3, uh, again, you have to understand that it's not allowed to use that equipotential bonding for anything to do with the grounding electrode system of a building. It's it's not. It's again equipotential bonding grid. Okay? It's designed to the, the for the dip, to uh, reduce the voltage gradients that's between two contact points, okay? It is not there to establish anything to do with the grounding electrode system. That should go without saying, but you would be surprised what what people will do with it. 250.64A, Aluminum or Copper-clad Aluminum Conductors. Okay, and 250.64A has been rewritten into a list format, so that's something new to look at, and it kind of meets what the NEC style manual wants as far as your list formats. And a list item three derived from existing text has been expanded to include the words unless insulated in addition to the new second sentence. All right? You need to watch for a TIA on this because you know what? List item three recognizes the use of listed sealed wire connector uh, systems, and I don't know that any actually exist, okay? Uh, so you might have a TIA come out to say that none exist. I don't know. We'll have to see what comes out. TIA's temporary interim agreement uh, on that. But it has a lot to do with whether or not you can terminate aluminum conductors when you terminate them within 18 inches of the earth. Uh, If you're within 18 inches of the earth, it's prohibited unless you do so in a listed sealed wire connector system. Uh, And the argument was that there are none that exist. So keep your eye on this one. Typically, I think the majority of the people run grounding electroconductors to electrodes that are in the earth. They use copper. Uh, Understanding that there's nothing that would prevent me to run a a, a, uh, grounding electroconductor of the aluminum type, let's say the water pipe ground, as long as I use the proper type of fitting, um, nothing would prohibit that so yes aluminum can be used yes copper clad aluminum can be used you just had the limitation when when it's when it's within termination of the earth Uh, but they add an allowance for this uh, insulating devices or these listed uh, sealed wire connector systems under the list item three so look for a TIA on that but you're going to see that allowance in the code so if somebody out there develops it or there is ones on the market then they can actually terminate closer than 18 inches. Uh, but you've got to be in that type of device. Fi- uh, two twi- uh, 250.64E1, general, the word electrically" has been incorporated into the second sentence of the, of the section. So if you're following along, go look at 250.64E1, which I will do as well. So hopefully you follow along. And we go to 250.64E1. Now E1 deals with raceways and enclosures for grounding electroconductors. Uh, Here's the problem. I probably should have have submitted this to say raceways, cables, and enclosures for grounding electroconductors because there are manufacturers that actually produce a grounding electroconductor inside of a cable armor. But be honest with you, it doesn't technically qualify as meeting the cable requirements so it probably falls more under the enclosure uh, application. But again, um, probably should have been something to think about and, and, and discuss. Uh, you know, but anyway, I think we get there. I just don't want people using the term raceway uh, for cables because uh, it's they're two different things. And I th- be honest with you, I, I think a cable is... is Probably a bare conductor inside of an armor is more of an enclosure. But to be honest with you, if you look at the definition from the wiring cable industry on what a cable is, it's one or more cables, uh, or one or more conductors. uh, So anyway, I'll get off of that one. All right, so we're looking at it, and this is basically when you're dealing with Ferris Metal Raceways, um, and we do make a steel MC, okay? Anyway, I'll get off that. Uh, for for grounding electroconductors conductors shall be electrically continuous from the point of attachment to the cabinet or equipment to the grounding electrode and shall be securely fastened to the clamp or fitting. okay so that's the, the rule all right on that. Um, it the words and electrically have been incorporated into the second sentence which it says an electrically, Ferrous, metal, raceway, or enclosure shall be bonded at each end. So I guess that's been added. The revision clarifies that the type of path of the wire and the surrounding conductors in a raceway, uh, the conductors and the conduit must be electrically bonded to each end of each other uh, t- to form a parallel path for any imposed currents. Okay, So it does say that in the middle of the general rule that it tells you that ferrous, metal, raceway, and enclosure shall be bonded at each end of of the raceway or enclosure to the grounding electrode or grounding electroconductor. Okay, so we still have that requirement to bond at each end. Um, it can be due through a bonding bushing where you take the grounding electroconductor and feed it through the lock nut, or you could take it and go from a bonding bushing, connect it directly on to the enclosure, but if that's what's going to be sleeving. The grinding electroconductor and it's a ferrous metal raceway, then you bonded it bonded at both ends. So they just simply added the term quote and electrically unquote to the second uh, sentence. Not real big significant change, but I guess we should talk about it. Uh, in 250.64 F3, again, we're talking about. Uh, the installation for these electrodes. So again, that brings us to the a bar, a a, a bonding jumpers from the grounding electrode shall be printed to connect to an aluminum or copper bus bar. So again, we're talking about making these, these connections for the grounding electrode conductors to actually connect to. And then, of course, you'll have a, a a common grounding electrode that goes all the way back and they're connected to this bar, but we didn't have any real Fin- finite dimensions to this bar. We knew that it had to be a, a quarter by two inches, but we didn't say what length it had to be. We had a width width and a depth, but we have to make sure that it's of sufficient length to accommodate the number of terminations necessary for the installations. That was added. Okay, you would go without common sense, but I have seen people stack uh, these connections onto a small bus bar that wasn't long enough because they had so many connections and then you, you did it in a way that it just it, the integrity of the connections was flawed. Okay, so that's what was taking place here. So the words thick and wide have been added following the numeric values. So it's going to talk about thickness and wide. So quarter a quarter inch thick, two inches wide. Those have been added for clarity. And again, this correlates uh, with the 250.64D. Okay, you have to have a sufficient length uh, of 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 this bard in order to make connections. So just, just give some guidance, that's all. Added some additional guidance there. All right, 250.66 A, B, and C, the infamous soul connection that seemed to f- confuse people for years. What is a soul connection? Oh, I, I, you know, I hear that all the time. So what is it? Uh, the text related to the, conne- uh, the, the concept of soul connection Guess what, everybody? That has been removed. The term soul connection no longer appears. The wording, quote, that does not extend on to another type of electrode that requires a larger size of conductor shall have added to subdivisions for 250.66. Okay. So if I'm going from a ground rod to a ground rod, obviously the grounding electroconductor goes to the first ground rod. From the first one to the second one is a bonding jumper. We already know that based on the existing language that the bonding jumper need not be any larger than the grounding electroconductor that's serving the electrode. When you put them both together, they serve as the grounding electrode system. The reason this was significant, okay, is it revises the fact that if I go to a concrete case electrode, it's four gauge. If I go to a ground ring, It's two gauge. Doesn't have to be larger than that. If I go to ground rods, it's six gauge. Okay. But with this revision, here's what it says in its entirety. Let me read it because I'll explain to you what's important. It says if the grounding electro conductor or bonding jumper connects to the electrodes described in 250.66 A, B, or C. Okay. And we're talking about ground, ground rods, concrete case electrode, uh, those type of aspects, a case electrode, ground ring, and a pod, rod, pipe, or plate, that's A, B, and C, does not extend on to other types of electrodes that require a larger size conductor. The grounding electroconductor shall not be required to be larger than the sizes established in 250.66 A, B, and C. Makes sense? To me, it does. It's not extending on to anyone that's required to be larger. This clarifies to me. That if I'm going to concrete case electrode, and I'm stopping, that, that it only has to be a four. If I'm going to a ground rod, it only has to be a six. Now, what if I'm going to a water pipe that's continuing on to a ground ring, which is continuing on to ex- structural steel? Well, the water pipe ground, let's say it was a 400 amp rated service. It's a 500 KC mil conductors, okay? And I'm sizing it based on these 500 KC mil conductors. And I determined to a water pipe that it's got to be a 1-0. So then it's got to be a 1-0 to the water pipe. But if it goes from the water pipe onto a ground ring, then it has to remain a 1-0. Remember, the code said it could be a 2-gauge under the allowances of 250.66B, for example. However, because it's extending on from there to a structural steel, it has to maintain its size of a 1-0. So that's very simple to me. Now, if it goes from that last rebar, uh, concrete um, structural steel to a ground rod, then it's, it is not extending beyond that electrode. It, doesn't, it can now drop down to a six on that last leg. Okay? Makes sense to me. But if you throw any of those smaller ones, like a ground rod, between two electrodes that are required to have a, a larger size, then the ground rods are going to have to have the same size that's required for the other larger electrodes. Now it is very clear to me. It makes more sense, that soul connection, get rid of it. Guess what? Code making panel five, you did an awesome job. And I can't even say that I was a part of that because I didn't even get to sit in on that. That sucks. Sorry. (laughs) Great job, guys. That was a good one now. All right. Well, let's see what we're at. I'm going to stop, I believe. Let's see where we're at here in time. Uh, Let's see. We're a little over an hour. So I'm going to go and stop. This is the end of part two. We're going to end at at 250.80. We have an exception there that's going to apply. This has to do with the metal elbows and the bonding requirement for for that application. So we're going to end there, and that's going to be part three. Uh, We're still going to be in chapter two, but I want to keep these at about an hour, and I've kind of gone 18 minutes over. So again, hopefully we've answered some questions here for you. Again, you're looking at these the same as I'm looking, and I'm trying to just bring them to you. Obviously, I'm going to be developing more detailed presentations on the uh, with some examples of each one of these. i have kind of just giving you the surface content of the change now, but hopefully it kind of gives you a little insight on what's changing. It wasn't to be the most definitive uh, description of all the changes. It's just kind of going over the changes, um, and obviously, we haven't even seen the publication of the 2017, so I'm sure we're going to get much more detail uh, as we start to put together more of our change type of uh, books and documents and all that type of thing. So I'm just kind of giving you a heads up on what took place. So thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned for part three, where we pick up on, uh, we're still in chapter two. Uh, so thanks again. And, uh, hopefully you join us next time. God bless. And remember, visit our website, masterthenec.com. Go listen to our webinars, listen to our other podcasts. And if you got any questions, email us at info at masterthenec. Thanks again, and God bless.